Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying together chapter 5, verse 2, through chapter 6, verse 3. So while you're turning there, I'll tell you what I told Jenny and the folks in prayer this morning, uh, that this really is one of the strangest passages uh, I've ever come across uh, in preaching. So uh, usually I'm able to look at a passage and go, I know exactly what that's getting at, where that's going. Uh, This one, uh, I was up until the wee hours of this morning trying to figure it all out, so we'll see what we get At any rate, I've just tried to create an olive branch for myself, (laughs) should I need it later. All right. So, chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, it is the bride speaking, but it is Solomon writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. And she says, I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch. Apparently, suddenly, my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city, and they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. And these others, they speak now. What is your beloved more than any other beloved? O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? Now she responds, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns, set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. They say then, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? And she closes, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's. 
and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So we need to pray. Let's do that. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We do pray now that you would help us to understand it as best as we possibly can, as fruitfully as we possibly can. We ask, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, upon both the preaching of your word and the receiving of it. We ask that we would ultimately have our hearts delighted in our Lord Jesus Christ, and that all the way to him we would be helped along the way in the ways that your word intends. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So a bit of sage advice. There is no such thing as a perfect marriage. There are exemplary marriages, right? There are sweet marriages. Uh, There are marriages that testify with great power to the saving love of Christ as they're meant to do. But there are no perfect marriages, at least not this side of the fall where there are no perfect people. We have redeemed people, we have maturing people, but we don't have perfect people, at least not yet. So sometimes what that means is, is that marriage is going to be really hard. Sometimes spouses will not see eye to eye. Often, in fact, their desires will conflict from day to day. Uh, an array of things will combine to construct a cross upon which one or the other of both of them will need to die. Uh, There will be moments when self-interest creates a chasm that only self-sacrifice can bridge. Now, the message of the Song of Songs and of our text today is that there is a love that merits such sacrifice, that there is a covenant that calls for it, that there is a union that, properly understood, best understood, will not allow for what we call irreconcilable differences. It is, at its heart, a missional kind of submission that takes to heart for better and for worse. In our best moments and in our worst. When we are so very sweet to one another and when we are so very sour also. Now, that's not in any way to lower the holy expectations that we should have in marriage, only maybe, maybe, to bring them out of the realm of this sort of dreamy-eyed idealism and into the realm of biblical and experiential realism. Right? There is no perfect marriage. And in affirming that, we're made the wiser to ask questions like this. When imperfection does rear its inevitable head, what do we do? What do we do? How are we to honor Christ and each other? What does Edenic love look like then when there's a serpent crawling around in the den? Right? When there's a lot of the fall in our springtime. If you're single and you hope to marry, or maybe you're on the cusp of marriage, or would like to be of good counsel to struggling spouses, or maybe this morning you are those struggling spouses, What's the move then? What is the move then? How are you to proceed toward the beauties and the blessings of a repentant reconciliation with one another? All right, now, here we go. Our first main heading, covering verses 2 through 6, we get the bride's nightmare. The subtitle there is Eden Interrupted. So speaking of expectations... You recall the transfiguration of Jesus, just for a moment? It's always striking to me how after that event, that glorious event, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is instantly met by trial. Okay? And so it seems a pattern for us also. Right? We have peaks, and they're immediately followed by valleys. We have our highs, our spiritual highs, and then we have our spiritual lows. We have glories, and then they're immediately met by trials. We have our Edens, and then they're met by an opportunistic serpent looking to strike. So before we even arrive at our text this morning, let's just hear how watchful we need to be, how on guard we need to be, perhaps especially in our sweetest seasons. 
visions of heaven seem to be followed by thorns in the flesh. Whether to humble us in our pride or or make us battle-tested for the fight of faith, hard trials always seem to lie in the path of heavenly treasures. And the best marriages are not exempt from that pattern. Okay, God walks Adam and Eve down the aisle, right? They're wedded, and they have bedded, and into that garden, what happens next? Along slithers a serpent. Okay? Well, listen, the last we saw of our couple in the Song of Songs, they too were in a kind of garden. They were tasting the fruits of marital consummation. They were drunk with love. All was right in the world. All was ideal. They were having that mountaintop experience with each other. And for the most part, has it not been the feel of the Song of Songs all the way through? Okay? This almost unbroken melody of Edenic, idealistic love. But now, into that garden, along slithers a serpent. It seems. Uh, we've been doing some pre-marriage counseling, Jenny and I, and this is one of the things we recently discussed. Uh, once you say, I do, don't expect the serpent to leave you be for your honeymoon. Okay? Uh, the serpent hates Jesus. He hates Jesus' people. And he hates Jesus' mirrors like marriage with Jesus at the center of it. So he won't have any sympathy for that sweet season. doesn't matter if you turn off your cell phones. Okay? You can expect an uptick in his attempts to drag the both of you down. So Adam, as you see him, you need to crush his head as soon as possible. And Eve, you need to help him out. You need to hand him the sledgehammer if he needs it. Pray, be in the Word together, keep short accounts with one another, don't go to bed angry, have a church that's great and healthy and loves you, holds you accountable, be a unified front for Jesus together. All right, to our text. She appears in verse 2 to have fallen asleep. And after that, the details are... uh, Less than easy to interpret, as I said. Uh, What does she mean that she had fallen asleep, but now her heart is awake? I I don't think she's dreaming. I think it's just poetry. Meaning, we can't exactly take the details of the text as a linear unfolding of actual events like we might in historical narrative, something like that. A literary type in the Bible, it matters. And so I think it's all a poetic description of an actual event intended to teach us a few lessons along the way. And so she may be dreaming. She may be dreaming. Or it may just be that she's fallen asleep with a certain, how shall we say, unmet expectation and gone on to doze off with a bit of a hot and bothered heart. Okay? So then the question becomes, what's the crux of the matter? Why would her heart be awake like that? Why would it be uh, hot and bothered and irritated, frustrated as she falls asleep? And I kind of cast my lot for the issue of miscommunication between the two of them. From the various details in our passage, they might have set up another late-night garden experience as husband and wife. And perhaps verse 3, you read that there, She's prepared herself for that. She's bathed. She is undressed. She's now in the bed. And she'd gotten excited about it, right? She'd gotten excited about his excitement, excited about seeing him, having that time with him. Indeed, in the recent background, maybe the music is still playing here. Eat, friends, drink, be drunk with love. And with every repetition of that line, maybe your heart is is skipping a beat, you know, until having waited so long, she fell asleep. 
But at any rate, we're not told why he was so delayed in coming to her. And we need to bear in mind that they didn't have iPhones. It's not like they could call her and tell her to put the champagne on ice for a little bit. But then all the more reason, I would say to him, to be on time, man. (laughs) Be on time, brother. If you plan to date for, say, 10 o'clock, don't get home at dew point. He says in verse 2 that his head is wet with dew. We know it's early morning, 3, 4 o'clock, when he gets home. Now, again, he may have reasons. We don't know. What we do know is, one, when he gets home, he's still in the mood. For love. That she's bathed and undressed is not so much of a problem for him. However, it also appears he knows he's got some explaining to do, <laughs> that he needs to say sorry by being exceptionally sweet. That's how he does it. So he comes to the door, and we get the greatest concentration of sweet talk. In the whole Song of Songs, he says, open to me, and then four titles, my sister, my love, my dove, oh, and then for good measure, my perfect one. <laughs> and so everybody that I read this week, we all agree, he's, he's after intimacy, right? He's, he's trying to get her to open the door. Uh, the, the hour does not matter, and if it was all scheduled and planned, that doesn't seem much to matter either but it's very much mattered to her, I think we can say. Uh, What might have been part of her getting ready for intimacy before is now clearly put forth as prohibitive. It is an inconvenience. If she was in the mood, she's not in the mood any longer. At that hour, to get out of bed, as she was, was verse 3, a hassle. And so it seems what we have is the really first instance in the whole song of a reality check in their marriage. Their desires are not the same. That much I think we can say with certainty. He wants intimacy on his time, or really much, pretty much any time. She perhaps wanted intimacy at the agreed upon or expected time, which is not 4 a.m. in the morning when he's all soiled and soaked. So Eden, temporarily has been interrupted. Now, by the look of verse 4, it's like we've taken a trip through the portal of weirdness. Okay? The portal of poetry. All right, he has knocked and he has wooed and she's kind of rejected. Listen, I'm in bed and I've taken a bath and all this kind of thing. So she's initially rejected. And essentially what she's saying to him is, it's not the right time. That time is long gone, buddy. Okay? But then, verse 4, he puts his hand to the latch. And what happens? Suddenly her heart is thrilled again. Weird, right? So, talk about a, a sudden turn of affection and perhaps of events. What I think is happening is at his apparent persistence, displaying his desire for her, how deeply it runs, the ice that had covered over her affections was actually very thin in the end. It wasn't that big of a deal. So their love for each other was much warmer than the chill of any kind of miscommunication or inconvenience. And so, hand to latch, the ice appears to melt away, and the thrill returns. But now, this is where it really turns. Okay, she she gets up, still undressed, now open to intimacy, to open to him. But as she does, as she takes hold of the bolt, she finds her hands covered, verse 5, in myrrh. And again, we're left with what to make of that. Okay? And to be short with it, from the tenor of what's left in our text, 
I think it's he, I mean, it's split down the middle, disagree, you know, 50 on one side, 50% of the other. It's either he's done it or she's done it. The myrrh there on the, on the handle, it's one or the other. We, we don't know. I think he soaked the latch with myrrh. Now, why myrrh? Well, because myrrh spiritually symbolizes at least a willing or maybe even a, a contented kind of sacrifice. It can communicate a kind of death to the one person in order to the life of the other person. Now, why can't she have been the one to have applied the myrrh? She very well could have. You can talk to me about it at lunch. Okay? It's just that the way she responds, again, in the rest of the passage, seems to indicate that he has done the right thing here. He's not just stormed away, upset at her, or something like that. It seems to indicate he's done the right thing here, that he has led, he has beat her to the punch in making that sacrifice, and that she's understood it that way. Okay? In this case, then, I will loosely submit that what he's done is heard her complaint heard her hesitancy, he's understood it, he's taken it to heart, and then he's happily laid aside his desires to satisfy hers. In essence, by the myrrh, he's let her know, it's all good, honey. Okay, I get it. I'm not upset. I love you another time. <laughs> and then he's gone, okay? He's gone. And whereas then his apparent persistence, that's what she thought was happening here, thrilled her heart, his actual submission, because that's what he's done, his submission to her desires, that breaks her heart. Or perhaps it just sobers her once again to the excellency of his love for her. As she undoes the myrrh-soaked latch and opens the door to air, she realizes what she's rejected, which is simply the greatest lover in the world. As she's about to testify in our passage. Okay, so we arrived late for intimacy. The fact that he arrived for intimacy with me at all what a gift. And that he further shows me his love by looking not only to his own interests, but to, to my interests also. Oh goodness, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? He is worth the inconvenience. Now, whether or not we're talking about sexual intimacy... It's surprising what spouses will let interfere with their love. And at the human level of the poem, I'm really not meaning to absolve even the husband here. He's late arriving. He, he gets it, and he seems to show that he gets it by his deference to her. And she too seems to show a, a conscience that's sensitive to all the foxes that maybe she failed to catch. So the question is, why is there a conflict in the first place? And the simple answer to that is self-interest. They've lost sight for a moment of the fact that true love, biblically speaking, is inherently self-what? Sacrificial. It is intrinsically inconvenient. It takes work to do it well. It assumes a lot of sanctification. It majors in communication, in grace, in charity. It values the person over the problem, particularly if the problem is, at the end of the day, really, really petty. True love fights for Eden. It doesn't go to bed angry. It doesn't hold a grudge. 
By God's grace, it finally forgives. It believes the best. It desires at all cost for reunion. Now, spouses, is there a price tag on your forgiveness? Are you slow to or spring-loaded for reconciliation? What if, as in her nightmare, the chance passes you by? What if, worst-case scenario, the chance never comes again? Let me reiterate from two weeks ago. Life is too short, and the stakes in this love the gospel stakes in this love too great to let it get and stay cold for long. So what rifts, what inconveniences will we put off today for the sake of our love for one another, husband and wife? Will we bear whatever crosses lie in the way of covenantal intimacy? Because he has seems, and she will, as the rest of our passage now, bears out. So, to our second heading, running to the end of the passage, the bride's cross and Eden resumed. And we're really picking up at the end of verse 6 here, as in a dream, again it's like, poof, okay? The one whose word is the strength of her soul, he is suddenly nowhere to be found or heard. And so she is incredibly vulnerable as she heads out again into the city to search for him. And in what I take to be really a a troubling scene, an awful scene, uh, the potential danger that we mentioned back in chapter 3, now that danger is practically manifest. Okay? And if there's a place where I'm going to hope for a mere description of something she really only felt, it's here. It's in the abuse, the beating that she takes from this group of watchmen. In contrast to her beloved, remember how he protects her? Okay. In contrast to him, these men beat her and bruise her and strip away her dignity as a woman. So without him, it appears, she feels helpless. And yet for him, to find him, she is going to endure any kind of shame, any kind of beating, any kind of cross that she has to endure. She feels, listen, that his love is better than life. She feels that their love is worth whatever cross is demanded to regain their embrace. It is incredibly moving, even if only a poetic depiction, to see her through beating and bruising and stripping away of her dignity, to look at these daughters of Jerusalem in verse 8 and still unashamedly adjure them, my beloved is worth it all. Will you help me find him? If you see him, tell him, I am sick with love. You think that makes an impact on them? Sure it does. And we see it in verse 9. Please, they say, do tell us, what is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved? So they emphasize it, it's twice there, that you thus adjure us. And so these daughters find it a startling kind of endurance that serves to assure us that to her, in the end, he has done nothing in this text but love her well. Notice, she's not ticked off at it. She's still sick with love. It also serves to assure us then that she herself will not be denied that love. 
And so they want to know. They want to know. Who can compel a love like that? And why? What makes him so special? And in what seems to be the center of the text, she now gives her response, beginning in verse 10. What's she say? She says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. So, in a sea of men, her eyes see and focus on him. His head, verse 11, as well as his feet, verse 15, are the finest gold. To her, what she's saying is, he is as good as gold from head to toe. Okay? He is crowned and besotted with a kind of royal magnificence. Golden. And as to the look of him, she notes his dark and wavy hair. And how he has eyes to match her own. Eyes like those pampered doves. right, Soft and rich and full and inset beside these cushy cheeks with a sort of lovely earthen aroma. And then she focuses on his lips, and his lips are like lilies, as hers, remember, dripped sweet nectar a chapter ago. His dripped that what? Liquid myrrh. We talked about, by his lips, he is always a blessing to her. Okay? And brothers, listen. He apparently worked out. Okay. Uh, I mean, I don't, his arms are rods of gold, okay? Set with jewels. Uh, his body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. Uh, his legs, he has, they're not bird legs, okay? Alabaster columns set on bases of gold. He did not skip leg day. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. Basically, to her, he's Mr. Universe. What he is, is her knight in shining armor. See that? Jewels, sapphires, and whatnot. And then, on top of that, there's what's probably his most attractive feature to her. He's strong, he's handsome, pure gold through and through. But then it's back to where? His mouth. Yeah, his mouth. It is, verse 16, most sweet. Something to sit on, guys. Most sweet. And how she goes on tells us, I think, that she means more than just the taste of his kisses. She adds, he is altogether desirable. This, ladies, daughters, is my beloved. And this is my what? My friend. My friend. So, however great a kisser he might have been, he was just as good, if not better, a lover. And no, those are not the same things. What I mean is, he's skilled with his words. As we've seen throughout the Song of Songs, it's his words that have so constantly brought them back together. It's his words that have bridged their love. It's his words that have mended her heart time and again. It's his words that have edified and built up her soul. It's his words that have adorned her with praise. And so you see, he is more than a mere lover. He's her friend. He is her friend. And that, folks, that is next level lovely. He's more than a coexisting sex partner. They don't just live together. They live life together. 
They love life together. I would just guess that he, he laughs with her and he cries with her. We know he supports her. He's not committed to her for commitment's sake. He really likes her, if you remember from a week ago. And as the best of friends will say, we're to suppose he's made a habit of laying down his life for her. Greater love has no one than this. Right? His being her friend is, in essence, the greatest compliment she could give him. His love, she's saying, is like Jesus. It's like Christ. He's fitting the bill of Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives how? As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her friend. With perhaps a most recent sacrifice, one example of this. But in short, He's quite the sight for her sore eyes. He's what she needs to see. Or, as she's meaning to do, needs to see again in the best of lights. And it's not easy. Listen, it is not easy. Whether you're married or not, will be, whatever, it is not easy. No matter how godly you live with someone long enough, as spouses do, you will see the worst of them. And additionally, time together can tempt us to a familiarity that breeds contempt. Their actual glory can sadly become their former glory in our eyes. So we have to work at it. We need to think the best of our spouses. We need not only to remember what they were, but what they are, not only in our fleshly eyes, but in our developing spiritual eyes. Understand what this wife has just described of her husband. He's like a temple. Columns and the gold and the jewels and all these things. He's like a temple displaying what? The radiance of the glory of God. He's like Jesus. Brothers, can our wives say the same thing about us? Are we making it so that they can? Single brothers. I look out there, I see those young, bulging muscles. I know a lot of y'all like to hit the gym bigly, okay? But do you have a still greater passion to be as rocked up in Christ as you possibly can be? Leg day is not nearly as important as the Lord's day. Nor bicep reps, Bible reps. Nor protein shakes, practical shepherding. You get where I'm going? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Put it on your refrigerator if you need to. Bodily training is of some value. But godliness, radiance of the glory of God, godliness is of value in every way. Which is your priority? And if not the latter, what might you do today to change that? Because it needs to change. And ladies, listen. Just a brief word for you here. He can have the appearance of Adonis. But if he doesn't look like Jesus in any marked or maturing way, he is better left alone. If you want to be loved like this wife is loved by her husband, you need to emphasize godly character way more than any kind of manly curvature. All right. Well, then in chapter 6, verse 1, having praised him so highly, the daughters are like, you know what? Gracious me. We get it now. 
We get it now. Your beloved is a beloved worth the search. Any clues as to where he might be so we can join you in the search party? Real quick there, I'll just say, what a gift it is to have those around you who will labor with you for a healthy marriage. Who find it amid an otherwise dismissive culture is ready to just be like, yeah, you do your own thing. Go get your own. A dismissive culture. What a treasure to have those who desire to work alongside you and your husband, you and your wife, to protect and preserve what God has ordained there. Ideally, you should find that in your local church. A people who will love you both well enough to be invested in the two made one, living and abiding just like that. Sweetly united in covenantal love. Find those people. Now, Here's where we come upon a sudden twist. You see there in the text, just as soon as they volunteer, hey, we're ready to go search for him, light bulb for her. His whereabouts dawn on her. We don't know why. (laughs) We don't know how necessarily. We don't even really know where he actually is. His garden, in verse 2, could just be a garden, or it could be the garden of her. Her garden, as in chapter 4, verse 12, through chapter 5, verse 1. Personally, for today, I'm sort of inclined that way. But either way, the point, as we can tell from what follows next week, is that he is no longer lost. There's been reconciliation. They're together. Eden had been interrupted. Now Eden is resumed. They're back in the garden. And that resumption seems to finally rest upon those words in verse 3. And uh, maybe it's the lesson that's been relearned for her. So just listen carefully to these words. She says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And I don't want to make too much of a big deal out of it, but I do want you to notice how she's reversed the order here from chapter 2, verse 16. There... It was, my beloved is mine, and I am his. Here, again, it's, I am my beloved's. You see that? I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. She's reversed the order. It seems intentional, maybe even repentant, as if by his absence, she's remembered something that she had forgotten. She belonged him as he belongs to her you see to be in that covenant that marriage covenant together means at least at least that they share an obligation to make all the concessions necessary for pouring fuel on the pure fire of their love and as it relates to sex Sometimes that means a wise and understanding, I get it, another time. Patience. Whereas at other times, it means mercifully mustering all the glowing coals you can muster, yes, even at 4 a.m. when he is late and wet and muddy. Or, summarily, it kind of means You get and keep a sense of humor. You don't let dumb stuff become stuff to duel about. You don't let what's petty become more than that, petty. You don't let self-interest reign over the self-sacrifice that's situated squarely at the heart of covenantal love. And if you ever do, you just take a page out of this bride's book, okay? you begin to build that bridge back to Eden. You take that hard road. I know it hurts. She's beaten and bruised and battered and all these things. It hurts to be the one to start out. (laughs) But start out anyway. 
Make that humble trek to reconciliation. And along the way, think the best of your spouse. See Christ in them. See Christ in them. Remember the love that you had at first. Come to terms with how desirable they really are to you. In a word, put out all pride. Put away all pettiness. Reaffirm the covenant you've made before God, affirming its glorious and cross-bearing obligations. And as needed, because you will need it, don't be afraid to ask for help. To search out counsel to establish a circle of like-minded accountability. You do that. You do that. And what you're seeing in this passage is that it seems Eden will always be close at hand. Now, maybe you're wondering, why is it the bride who's always trouble? As if her husband's Mr. Perfect or something. Well, This is where I think we have to realize, be reminded that, yeah, that's kind of Solomon's goal. It's not just about love and marriage. It's ultimately about love for the Messiah. It's to point us to the perfect lover. It's to point us to one who, having borne his cross for us, calls us to take up our own crosses in following after him. It's about one who stands at the door of his bride's heart and knocks and says, can anyone hear me in there? I've come at my time, which for Jesus is the perfect time, to bless anyone who hearing my voice opens the door. So beloved, what have we allowed to come between us and Jesus? What have we allowed in our lives that's perhaps soured or staled His voice? Are you as close to Jesus as you ought to want to be? Or are we, like the church at Laodicea, more self-interested, more self-fulfilled, and therefore more self-deceived? about our spiritual condition. Do we feel inconvenienced by Christ? Have we lost our first love? And if so, dear ones, what are we going to do to get it back? What's the move? How about this? How about searching for Him as if our lives depend upon How about calling to mind His excellencies? Oh, dear ones, listen. Can we give an answer for why our beloved is better than another beloved? Better than false gods? Better than sin? Way better! Better than our idols? better even than our best things. We do realize, right, that the whole radiance of the glory of God thing, that's about Jesus. And He always makes good, Jesus, on His end of our covenant with Him, even when we don't. He's a perfect husband. And so, it seems like it might be as good a time as ever to reaffirm We are not our own. We are His. That at greatest cost, God Himself bought us by the blood of Jesus. Friend, do you want to know the love of God? Do you want to be saved from your sins? Do you want to go to heaven, have eternal life? The thing I would say to you this morning is, don't then reject the overtures of Jesus. Hear the gospel and act upon the gospel. Believe that everything you need for salvation, Jesus has provided for you by His life, by His death, by His resurrection. And you believe that He will reconcile you to God. What a wonder! 
Believe in Him and come and let us know about it. Okay? Now listen, man, love, what a thing. It's hardly easy. And I'll stand by that sage advice that I gave at the beginning with one caveat. There are no perfect marriages in this world. All the more reason then to thank God for the day when a perfect marriage there will be. Unbroken and for all eternity. A day when our faithful longing will give way to rapturous sight. And suddenly, like poof, we'll be with the self-sacrificial lover of our souls, Jesus Christ, in a really big garden forever. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you. We thank you that you love us perfectly. Oh, help us to realize it. Help us to lean back upon it and to find rest for our souls there. May we be enraptured again by seeing the radiance of your glory as the lover of our souls. We ask it in Jesus' name.